So we're going to be in Revelation 5 today. So this, this chapter is going to push us. It's going to push us to read the whole of this book symbolically, but, but just today, this chapter is really going to push us. And, and the weeks that are going to follow as well are also going to push us to read um, what's going on symbolically, because there's going to be some really crazy things that are going to start to transpire here. And so if, if we don't start to read this literally, uh, this is what, at least today, this is what a literal picture of Jesus is going to look like. So it, it's going to get wacky, and uh, it, it will create some serious problems. So last week, John's vision had him in God's throne room in heaven. And there was a throne uh, where it was described the one who was seated on the throne. He was seated there, and he was surrounded then by 24 elders and four creatures. It was a majestic setting that compelled those who were in God's presence to worship him. Today, we are still in that throne room, but we're going to be able to see some different developments going on. So I'm going to read here in Revelation 5. I'm going to read the whole of the chapter for us as we get going. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of instant, incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, the blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's pray. 
God, thank you so much. What a great chapter that raises our eyes to look at you, to see your worth, to see your glory. Would you give us spiritual eyes to see this this morning? Please do a work in our hearts. Rest heavy upon us and change us for your glory, for the sake of your name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Okay, so there's so much going on in this chapter, so let's jump right into it. Clearly, there is a focus on the scroll going on here. So John sees the one seated on the throne holding a scroll. Now, the scroll is full of writing, as it says here in these verses, that it's written within and on the back. So this whole interaction of what's going on here speaks to the importance of what is in the scroll. And then it says, to emphasize the important, it says that it is sealed with seven seals. So it is completely sealed. It is guarded well. Now, we don't know the specifics of what's contained in the scroll. Maybe it's God's purposes, his plans. But what we can conclude is that what's contained in it is crucial. And that it must be opened. It is vital. And verse 2 really captures this need as it talks there about an angel, but not just any angel. It talks about a strong angel. And this angel is proclaiming not with just a voice, but with a loud voice. And he says, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So there's urgency to opening the scroll and knowing what is contained within it. But what we find then is that no one who is on the earth or under the earth or even in heaven was able to open or to look into the scroll. The, the way that this is word is it implies that there were strong men who were sought out, that the smartest tried their hand to open the scroll. That effort was made to open the scroll to unlock its contents, but no one was able to do that. And the response of John then is really telling for us. He immediately begins to weep loudly. To not know what is in the scroll. To not have what's contained in the scroll is devastating. And what is quickly made known for the reader is that the weeping can stop. John, who began to weep loudly, can stop his weeping. This is the work that God is up to, even in the world that we live in now. This is a repeated theme in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, we read there, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying. We long for a reality like that. Every single one of us wants that in a world that's infested with sin and fracturing all around us, causing hardship and heartache. It is hard at times to believe that God is at work, putting at work, putting a stop to our tears. But, but even even the mere presence of evil that we all encounter in our everyday lives causes us to long for what John is hearing. 
what he will experience that the weeping can stop. Now, the reason that it says that John's weeping can cease is because of the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. Now, even if you grew up in church, this can just sound odd. Like, what is going on here? The lion of the tribe and Judah and the root of David. So, the first phrase refers back to the first book of the Bible in Genesis. And there is a man talked about there whose name is Jacob, one of the patriarchs of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the ones in which God works to establish his people and his nation. Now, Jacob is at the end of his life, and so he is going around all of his sons, and he is blessing his sons. And he comes to his son named Judah, and he says a number of interesting things about his son named Judah. Uh, One of the things he says about him is he calls him a lion's cub a lion's cub, inferring that there is someone greater, one who is greater, who is going to come from him. And what we will learn later on is that the true lion will come from Judah. Jacob also asserted that Judah will produce a great king, that from his line, a great king will come. The Gospel Transformation Bible speaks of Judah in this way. It says, Judah, about whom Jacob says that he will be praised by others. He will prove triumphant over his enemies. He is like a lion, and he will rule eternally as the nations of the earth submit to him. Intriguingly, all five of these marks come to be true of Jesus, the Messiah. So Jesus finds his lineage through the line of Judah. And Jesus, we eventually learn, is the ferocious lion who defeats all of his enemies. And he is a king, an eternal king, like no other. So Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. It also says here, the root of David. The root of David. Now, King David is considered to be the greatest king in the history of Israel. He was known for his military exploits, for expanding the boundaries of Israel, while also creating peace and bringing peace for God's people. Israel flourished during the time that David was the king. Now, in David's life, what we hear is, though he was the greatest king in Israel, he was far from a great king as we read of numerous instances in his life where he is, he is just not a great king. And so in his life, we hear a whisper of a greater king who would create a new people. And that new people would be not the nation of Israel, but Jesus' church. And this greater king would provide true salvation from humanity's greatest enemy, which is sin itself. And this king is, as I've mentioned, is Jesus. And and it's really amazing to track the storyline of the Bible and to see all of the undeserving, messy people that God uses to bring about salvation. Judah is a great example. If you would go back and you would read about Judah, like your mind would would go, like he, he was a messed up dude. So many things wrong in his life. And yet, God chooses to work in him and through him to accomplish his purpose. 
And, and then when we finally get to Jesus, we marvel that salvation is even a possibility. How could God, through all of these sinful, messy lines, bring about this one greater king and accomplish, uh, about, or accomplish, accomplish what he said he would do many, many years prior? And so what we get in and through Jesus is the ultimate David. Jesus Christ is the ultimate David. He is the ultimate warrior, the ultimate king, bringing about ultimate salvation. But this verse here says that Jesus is the root of David. Okay, when we think of David, we think of being a, him being a whisper for Jesus, and Jesus comes after him. He's pointing forward to Jesus, but this is saying that this is the, Jesus is the root of David. So Jesus is the origin of David. He's before David. He's the creator of David. He is the ultimate cause for David's life and all that David accomplishes in his life. And this is why Jesus is talked about as the beginning and the end. He is before David and he is after David as well. So when we get this picture then of who Jesus is, only someone like this could put an end to tears, could conquer that which instigates our tears. So only Jesus then can open that scroll. And it's at this point that it's really natural for us to view Jesus as this mighty conqueror. He is lion-like. He is ferocious. No one compares to him in the power that he possesses. So it's really startling what John sees next. Because what John sees next is not a lion, but a lamb. This lamb is a depiction of the one who has conquered sin and evil and death itself, who has conquered our greatest enemy, one that we are unable to defeat. And not only are we, are, are we unable to defeat our greatest enemy, we cannot even control it in any sense. This is what Jesus has come to conquer. Now, thinking about being a conqueror, being a fighter. I'm not much of a fighter, okay? You look at me, you can, you can guess that really quick, right? And let me illustrate how I, I'm much more of like a slap and run kind of guy. That, that's more what I am. Even these long, lanky legs, they're not, I'm not fast, but I'm still more slap and run. And I'll illustrate this. Uh, when I played college basketball, uh, one game, there was an individual who was much bulkier than me. And, and I, at that point, I, I probably weighed another 45 pounds, okay? Um, but I was playing against a guy who was much bigger, at least wider than I was. And, and he was pushing me around, okay? And he got so physical at one point, he threw an elbow at my head and just clocked me. And, and I was like, oh man, as an immature college individual, I did not respond well to that, but I was going to be very strategic in how I responded. So a couple times down the floor, shot goes up, he's in the lane, bunch of people, and I see my opportunity, and I come in, and I punch this guy. I didn't, like, 
fully wind up or the referees would see this, right? Kids, this is, I am not recommending this at all, okay? This was sinful, this was evil, but I punched this guy as hard as I could without getting, like, getting the referee's attention. And to illustrate who I am, okay, I punch him as hard as I can, and I start walking away in the middle of the game. So I'm like walking towards the out of bounds. Who walks to the out of bounds in the middle of the game, right? Something had to be going down. And I peek back over my shoulder and I see my, my best friend on the team, who's the point guard, getting thrown on the ground by this individual, taking the hit for me. And thankfully the referees grab this guy before he gets to me because uh, I, I had no interest in fighting, right? but, but I say this to illustrate, like I'm not a fighter in any way. So if I'm faced with a fight, lion, lamb, I'm always choosing the lamb, okay? And pretty much over anything, over a cow, over a Canadian goose, like I'm, I'm like, I don't like that hissing goose. I can't handle that. Like I'm going way around even that, right? I am not a fighter. I am not a conqueror. I would choose to fight that lamb anytime. So the idea of a lamb as a conqueror conveys surprise for us. It's intended to startle us because Jesus in his conquering is doing it through sacrifice. He's conquering through sacrifice. And this is totally upside down to how we oftentimes think. Now, biblically, a lamb has major significance. So if you go back to the second book of the Bible, Exodus, God rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt. Egypt was wickedly oppressive, and they greatly abused God's people. Now, despite many pleas from Israel and warnings from God, Egypt would not relent of their harsh treatment of Israel. And this led to the death of the firstborn in all of the Egyptian households. Now, how did Israel avoid their firstborn being uh, killed as well? It was because they painted lamb's blood on the door frames of their houses. It was the lamb's blood that saved their firstborn. Leviticus 4 also, this talks about sin offerings that are made for unintended sins. And the sacrifice was to be a lamb. A lamb and its blood have deep importance for the whole story of the Bible. And so in that sense, it should not surprise us that we see a lamb here. And we must not miss the fact that this lamb had been slain. The lamb that John is seen in the throne room had been slain. And this is how John introduced Jesus, when Jesus was coming on the scene in John, uh, Gospel of John, chapter one, I believe it is, he's introducing Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus had died. He had been unjustly killed, but the Lamb who had been slaughtered is now standing in God's throne room. He has done the impossible. He has gone from death to life. And in this, we're given a depiction that is endlessly compelling or that intends to be endlessly compelling. It's so important for us to see Jesus here as both lion and lamb. He is both lion and lamb. He comes as a meek sacrifice through which 
he is going to authoritatively kick butt. And this idea is driven home all the more with the symbolic description John gives of Jesus. He says he has seven horns and seven eyes. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we must not read this literally. This is not a description of what Jesus looks like. This is a description of what Jesus is like. So the horns emphasize Jesus' power. And his power is perfect, illustrated by the number seven, okay? The eyes speak to Jesus' knowledge. And his knowledge is perfect, illustrated by the seven eyes. So Jesus then goes and takes the scroll. And the creatures and elders that we talked about last week, immediately they fell down before the lamb. So clearly, even here, the scroll contains crucial information. And it's obvious that Jesus is worthy of worship. And it says these creatures are each holding a harp which will aid them in the song that they are about, are about to sing. They also have, what it says here, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So I was thinking about this this past week, I was thinking about how oftentimes we can think about prayer. Do you ever think about your prayers being worthless? Do you think about your prayers being unheard? thinking that they don't matter. The picture we get here is of prayers collecting in a bowl. They're heard. They are known. And, and for me, as I was reading this, I was just challenged. Like, am, am I uh, someone who prays in such a way to fill up a bowl? Not as a religious task, but, it, but is this just kind of how I live my life. As the New Testament talks about, do I pray continuously? And in that is the bowl being filled up by my prayers? Or is there just kind of a drop in the bottom of the bowl? This is a great picture for us to really wrestle with. And then the crew who are filling up the throne room, they break out in song and worship Jesus with a new song. And I love the fact that it says a new song here because sometimes we have a tendency when we hear songs, we just want to stick on those songs and we, we kind of put ourselves in a certain, I don't know, genre or generation of music. And then anything new is just bad, not because it's bad necessarily, but because it's new, right? But here's biblical precedent that just because a song is new is does not make it bad, right? Now, that doesn't mean all new songs are great either, but um, it, this is a good encouragement for us. So the song then, it affirms that Jesus is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. And the opening of the seals is what we're going to be getting into in the weeks that follow. But what's in focus here is why Jesus is worthy. Because he died, because his blood was shed, and he was enslaved, or, or because enslaved and imprisoned people were ransomed from captivity, were set free from sin. The song says people from every tribe and language and people and nation were ransomed, listen, for God. 
This is why people are saved for God. When someone becomes a Christian, it is not merely so that our problems disappear, so that we can live a happy life. Now, God is in, he, he has designs for us to be filled with joy, for sure. But we're not saved so that we can simply avoid the pain of our sinful decisions. We are saved for God, for his purposes, for his mission, for the things that he deems important. And if that's not our focus, if that's not what we're centered on, we, we really need to wrestle with, are we saved for God? Are we saved for that which God intends? Or are we saved? Have we prayed a prayer because we simply want fire insurance? Because we want an easy life or nice things? We are saved for God. And God saves his people and he creates a kingdom here on earth. And in his kingdom, he creates outposts, what we know as local churches. And these outposts are scattered throughout his kingdom here on earth. And Christians are called then to serve as God's servants, part of his outposts, his local church, while we are here on this earth. And our lives are intended then to be a song that we sing. The song of our lives is worthy are you. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. The constant focus on Jesus' lamb-like characteristics beckons us to live lives where we make this well-worn path to the cross, constantly reminding ourselves of the necessity of Jesus' death for our sins, reveling in and resting in Jesus' work on the cross. It is crucial to our lives. In verse 11, then, we see a curious expansion of the, of the vision as John hears many angels singing praise to Jesus. It says here, myriads of myriads. Do you know what that means? What a myriad is historically it means 10,000. 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million. That is one united voice, a voice of 100 million. Now, this is not a specific number, okay? It's not like John's counting specifically. This is a large number of angels singing the worth of the lamb. And we've got to notice the emphasis on the slain lamb, okay? This is the focus. And then all power, all wealth, all wisdom, all might, all honor, all glory is in the slain lamb, is found in Jesus. Uh, notice then here, the contrast between verse 3 and verse 13. Okay, in verse 3 it says, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll. And then in 13, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and it adds in here, 
and in the sea saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. So, so what we have going on here is the unworthy are worshiping the worthy one. The ones who were unable to open the scroll are the ones who are worshiping and praising the one who is able to open the scroll. And it's exclamatory. This is worship. This is what Jesus Church is intended for. We gather around Jesus and we worship him. We marvel at his greatness. We rest in his hope. We work by his strength. But most, mostly we are worshiping him in all of his glory. And the picture that we're given here should really push us as we think about a normal Sunday morning. So much more than Sunday morning being just a time for us to come and consume, a time for us to come and be filled up. Now, now the intention is for that to occur, but the intention of a Sunday morning is so much more than for us just to be filled up. It is a time for us to pour ourselves out in the praise of Jesus' name. Two points of gospel application for us as we close this morning. First of all, I want us to notice what is central here in the throne room. It's not the creatures. It's not the elders. It's not precious jewels. It's not the thrones or the scroll. Despite the stunning nature of all of these things, the thing that is central here is the lamb who was slain. Jesus is the main point in all of this. I think this is so amazing, not just right here, but throughout the Bible, how the Bible is incessant in bringing us to Jesus over and over again, and then just leaving us there. There's nothing beyond that. We've gotten to where we need to be. In our context, we're always looking forward to the next thing, the next event, the next activity that's going to entertain us. There is no next thing here for us. It's Jesus. Made me think of Russell Crowe in the movie Gladiator when he says, are you not entertained? Jesus is the point. When we don't see that, we're minimizing who he is and what he has done. We're not seeing Jesus for who he really is. Our tendency in all of life is the same tendency we have in reading a passage like this. It's to get distracted, and in this case, it's to get distracted by the scrolls. What's written in it? Why could no one else open the scroll? What relevance does it have for me? Listen, the next weeks we're gonna hear some really crazy stuff John sees as the seals on the scroll are removed. And our tendency will be, as we read those chapters, to divert our eyes away from Jesus. But if Revelation has taught us anything thus far, it is that Jesus must be central. We must not be distracted. We must not let him be removed as the most important part of our lives. We need Jesus. The second picture in these verses is Jesus is working and saving in the midst of seemingly hopeless circumstances. When no one else can open the scroll, Jesus can. 
he is worthy. When no one else understands your pain, Jesus does. He was slain. When your friend finds, someone's be finds someone better to hang out with, Jesus is closer than a friend. He is there. In loss of jobs, loss of babies, loss of love, loss of life, loss of joy, and loss of health, or loss of money, and loss of reputation, or loss of hope, Jesus is saving. Jesus is working. When you don't know where to turn, when you've got no other place to turn, then you're in the right place because now you can turn to Jesus. In blinding darkness, Jesus is the light of the world. When sin is attractive, Jesus is far better. As much as Jesus may be the Sunday school answer, this simple truth is the profound answer we need in all of life. Trust in him. Not, not even in him changing your circumstances. But trust him to be enough at all times. Because he is. That is who he has revealed himself to be. I want to close here by reading the verses from Colossians that I read at the beginning of our, of our time together. So Colossians 1. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross.